Hello, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Today, I'm talking to one of my all-time favorite designers, Prem Krishnamurthy. Prem is a founding principal of the New York design studio Project Projects, the founder and curator of the experimental gallery P, and is an editor for the arts journal Paper Monument. Project Projects was the recipient of Cooper Hewitt's 2015 National Design Award for Communication Design, and he's worked on a range of projects from identity design to writing to interactive design to kind of curatorial projects. This was a a special interview for me. Project Projects' work has had a profound impact on my own design practice and how I think about design. I discovered the studio shortly after I graduated from undergrad and seeing their work and how they think about design really changed my own work and my own kind of design career trajectory. And I've said before that the identity that they designed for SALT a couple years ago was a big influence on my own desire to go back to graduate school to study design at a deeper and more critical level. So this past summer, I visited Project Project's offices in New York to talk with Prem about the studio's work and how he thinks about design at a theoretical level around topics like authorship and translation. Uh, This was a very interesting conversation that ranges uh, from the false divide between form and content to the deeper design writing that Prem would like to see that can span from the macro to the micro of a design practice. And we close the conversation with a a really wonderful list of the authors that Prem's been reading lately, which make for a really great reading list that's worth uh, checking out. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Prem Krishnamurthy. Project Projects has been so kind of influential to my own work and how I think about design. I kind of came, I discovered your studio right as I was kind of graduating undergrad and it, and seeing your work and how you think was very kind of like messed me up for a while because I kind of came from this traditional design education and I saw this work that was like, oh, design is much bigger than I thought it was or thought that it could be. And so I thought it would be interesting to start with just a little bit of your own background and kind of how you think about the studio and how you kind of arrived at this kind of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, for me personally, I came to design actually from more of writing and editing. And um, I, I came to design because when I was in high school, I had been involved in kind of writing things and editing school publications, and then um, I kind of just, through a set of random things, ended up becoming the person who laid these things out, who laid out, like, the school newspaper and laid out the literary magazine. And, um, And so I kind of, and that was really where it started, and then um, I think I went, and then I went to, when I went to college, I really actually intended to study photography and um, some combination of photography and philosophy. And, um, but also I think I bought two books. There were two books in um, a bookstore in New Haven. And one of them was Robin Kinross's Modern Typography. And the other was Robin Robin Brinkworth's Elements of Typographic Style. And so, um, 
So uh, between Robin Kinross and Robert Bringhurst, I think I suddenly like kind of got opened up to this world of typography, and um, and it was really fascinating to me. And then throughout college, actually before I even took design classes, I also then started to design um, the Yale Literary Magazine. So I was kind of doing that before I was even taking classes, right. and and. And then at some point, it really, I kind of had this moment where um, I had always thought of myself more as an artist. And then I had this moment of saying, like, well, actually, design is this thing that combines language yeah. and it combines images. And these are two things I care about. And maybe this is a thing I should take more seriously. And so I ended up doing an internship at a design studio and then. Um, moving to Berlin, moving to Germany with a Fulbright and doing research that was more kind of ethnographic, but then after that, getting a job at a graph design studio, and that's how things evolved. And so, how how were you thinking about when you got when you kind of got that first job at the design studio? How were you were you thinking consciously about your practice and kind of? I don't know the word, the kind of more theoretical or philosophies of how you were designing at that point, or were you... It's a good question. Was it kind of like layout and aesthetics? And no, it was definitely, I mean, one should say, I mean, and you've spoken to a lot of people who have some, who have went to or taught at Yale. Yeah. I mean, I always like to say that um, the way that I learned as an undergraduate at Yale, the way that I learned graph design in the late, in the mid to late 90s, um, I always thought that graph design was basically like conceptual art, just with better typography. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. it was like there was no horizon okay. for me of the practical world of graph design. It was I was coming okay. to graph design from being in an art program and being very interested in art practice and the way that we made design was not super applied. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so. And, and then at the same time, I mean, I think the 90s were this moment of these kind of debates and writing right. about the idea of, like, authorship and right. design. Right. And, and I think that that was, and, and I myself was, in undergraduate, I was really interested um, in actually not kind of auteur theory in the sense of, like, like the yeah, filmic yeah, models yeah. that Michael Rock, um, you know, right. wrote about back then, but actually more in this kind of combined hybrid model of saying, okay, what does it mean to write and photograph and right. design at the same time? I, I, I love that you brought that up, because that was actually something I wanted to talk to you about, because that's something I feel is kind of a very consistent theme in your work with Project Projects, but also kind of your wider work, is this, whatever the output is, whether it is kind of writing or designed for client, there is an authorship to it, I think. Like there's a, I, I don't really even fully know how to explain it, but there's some sort of mark that it's coming from you. Yeah, I think that's a, it's something I've grappled with and I probably, uh, I probably spend more time talking to my therapist about this than, than, than I do in public. But I think that, well, I, I think it's, it's when I was, there was definitely a moment when I was in college, too, that when I said, I am not going to be an artist. I am okay. not yeah. going to, or after, shortly thereafter, I said, I am not going to pursue 
um, being an author in that form. Right. And I think I probably actually spent a while kind of rejecting that, and then maybe now in the last several years have come to some more middle position okay. where um, I think that obviously being also whether it's designing a thing or mediating thing or making a thing happen has a kind of authorship within yeah, it. Yeah. But I think that, um, I mean, I was recently, it's funny to go back to college, but I was recently throwing out all of the stuff from my parents' house that they've lived in for 37 years. And I found all of this work from college and, and, and it was really striking to me that I found, um, I found a, a, a project that I'd done in a class for John Gamble, who still teaches at Yale and is a university director and taught typography back then. And I was actually pleasantly surprised because it was a project where I think the assignment was just for us to write and design a kind of magazine article. And I took it upon myself to write a bilingual essay about in German and English about problems of translation that took these different different um, kind of historical precedents from the Rosetta Stone to um, kind of contemporary Japanese fashion magazines, took like five or six different precedents for how to deal with bilingual typesetting. And so I wrote this essay that I researched and then designed the thing. And I remembered looking at it, and I mean, I remembered when I was making that piece, the problem was always that I actually never had time to design it because I was spending all of my time oh, writing it, yeah. and then the design was never quite what I wanted it to be. And I, and then when I looked at it again, I was kind of pleasantly surprised to say, like, I read it and I was like, this is not a terrible piece of writing. Yeah. So I actually took the writing really seriously, even though the irony is that, as somebody told me after our final crit in that class, they said, you know, Crane, nobody is ever going to read this. We're in a graphic design <laughs> class. There's no person who is going to actually read this essay. And, 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 I mean, and it's interesting also because I feel like that is a subject that you still, from the outside, seems like you're still very much interested in and makes its way into a lot of your work of yeah. translation and things like that. Yeah, I'm very yeah. interested in these questions of kind of moving from yeah. one world to another and translation directly and yeah. um, the materiality of language. So it's it's yeah. it's it was uncanny to me to actually yeah, so see that that was still a thing that I cared about. I, I, I'm curious, kind of like going off of that a little bit, how you think about those kind of different modes of creating, whether it's writing and research, and like saying that you spent all your time kind of writing and research that you didn't design it, um, and now you kind of do all of those things, and you're a curator, and you kind of, like you're saying, there's all these different activities. How do you think about the relationship between all those, or, or the approach to, to those things? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, well, I should say that I think that there's... I've actually come to this realization relatively recently that I think the, each of those different activities, there's, well, on the one hand, there's a lot of overlap. And obviously, like, the kind of, I personally, um, I'm, I, like, you know, one of the kinds of situations that I like the most on a personal level are these kind of really complex and fucked up situations yeah. where it's like, I'm curating a thing, and then I'm also involved in writing a thing, and then also involved in designing or art directing right. a thing. And where, and I mean, and that's not to say that 
I think those are always the best things, but they are the things that feel kind of most interwoven, where yeah. there's really um, no... Like, I remember years ago, um, a friend of mine who's... A, a great artist had, you know, we were having this whole conversation about, you know, form and content, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. And and I was very much looking at it as a graphic designer. And then this was maybe eight, nine years ago, but I remember she said something, I don't remember what, but it's something became clear to me that form and content is almost um, a, a dialectic that graphic designers created. Like yeah. that was created uh -huh. yeah. by the problem of having a person who originates an idea and another person who gives it some sort of shape. Yeah. And that actually, when you know this friend of mine is talking about these things, for her, how she makes a film and how that film looks and what the film is about and then how it's presented are all one problem. Yeah. That being said, so there's like this kind of utopian ideal of a holistic way of working. Right. That being said, I'm very aware of the fact that actually, um, like even on a physical, almost ergonomic level, when I am sitting to make a piece of design, it occupies a different part of my brain and my body and my time than when I sit and I write a thing. Like, for example, like, like I only, my best writing happens early in the morning. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I can definitely, and we're, I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers who say similar things. Like, I can, I mean, it depends on what kind of writing, too, because obviously at a graphic design studio, there are, like, there's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, can, you write proposals, you write emails, you write um, kind of texts, you write um, press releases. Um, then you also try to write essays, and, you right. know, like, so definitely the further I get towards, like, that kind of essay mode, which is more sustained critical thinking, in a way, the more solitary that activity is yeah. for me. Whereas on the other hand, like of course, there is a large part of designing which for me is really solitary too, which is about sitting and like I still love typesetting. I don't do very much of it anymore yeah. in my yeah. life, but I love sitting and like crafting typography. But that's a very different part of my brain than coming up with ideas which often happens in a room right. with a bunch of people. Oh, that's interesting. Do you... This raises a bunch of different questions for me now. Let me just, can I add one thing? Or yeah, no, you yeah go? No, no, go for well, it. Well, I mean, the one thing I just realized, the thing that's consistent for me is that ever since I was in college, and I looked back this recently, I've always kept a notebook. And my notebook is actually where I kind of often work through both design things, but also kind of conceptual and writing things. And that's more fragmented now, because I take notes in a lot yeah. of different forms. But like, that's the kind of connected yeah. thread. Yeah, I mean, I have like, I have like six yeah. different questions now okay. based off of that. So let me try to like articulate this a little bit. It, it, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, kind of as I've been working on this, and I'm trying to build some sort of like sustained writing practice for myself. That's always been just something where it's like, if there's something I'm thinking about, I'll, you know, sit down and kind of write, but trying to make that part of, like, a habit for me, and I found the exact same thing, that if I'm, if I'm going to, like, sit and really kind of craft a piece of writing, that has to happen in the morning, um, and I can return to it later in the day, but if I don't start the day with that, I can't do it at all during the day, which I think is this kind of, like, interesting thing that I've been trying to figure out, um, but something that I've been thinking about relating to that is, as someone who's trained as a designer who kind of wants to be a critic in a way, or like, uh, you know, wants to engage in more critical activities, those often feel like separate activities to me. 
And, and you talking about the kind of form and content divide being somewhat artificial, I've started to think, you know, is our making and criticism also as separate as I think that they are? And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, and if, if you view those, when you sit down to write an essay, is that a very different, are you coming to that from a different place than when you're thinking as a designer? Or, or even like the gallery and kind of more curatorial activities, are those different positions? Well, well what I can say is that I've, re again, a lot of these are kind of recent discoveries, yeah. um, because I've been thinking through a lot of these questions myself. I, I mean, and one thing to say, which is, probably obvious, but it's that at a studio of the scale of Project Projects, so much of one's time as a principal and founder is spent on things that are, yeah. you know, kind of like more managerial and right. also kind of just like structural and strategic and all these things. But I recently discovered that a day is a good day for me when I've spent some period of time, it can even just be an hour, making something, and I realized that that making can be designing something, it can be writing a text and like really kind of making something that I like, it can be curating something, it can be hanging an exhibition, um, but like there's something very crucial to me and all of, I've realized that those things are, they're not equivalent, but they all do play a certain role, they make me feel a certain way, right. which is that if I do one of those things and it is very directly having my hands on, you know, one of these aspects, then it feels like a fulfilling day. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it doesn't matter, you know, it does it, I mean, I haven't, I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten to that level of empirical testing. Right. And I, I yet, don't think this a therapy session. No, no, but, no, but no, I haven't yet sat down and been like, well, how does it, but yeah, I, that's interesting. I, I, it's just more that I realized like, oh, if I actually write a, te like even a paragraph or two paragraphs and really craft this thing, then I feel a sense of like, oh, I did something today. Yeah, and the same yeah. thing happens when I sit down and you know, when I'm thinking about an exhibition and I actually, you know, either spatialize it or hang it or right. like, and the same thing happens if I typeset like a bunch of pages of a book or of, um, or, or, or design something on right. a computer. I feel like those things all, they put me to the zone. Yeah. Do you think, do you, um, I, I don't know how exactly to, to phrase this. Do you do much kind of essay writing? Still, or is I'm that, trying to do more of it, but yeah. And is that something that you see as very separate from the studio practice? Are there kind of relations between those things? I think it is separate from the studio practice. I have to say because I think for a long time, I think I thought that all of those things could be housed in the studio. Yeah. And I think I, for a long time, I wanted to think that one could design and write and curate all out of the studio. And I mean, for sure, the studio is the nexus. The studio is the right. kind of the point that actually makes all those things possible. But I do think that like the sustained concentration of, for me, and this is very personal, like the sustained concentration of writing an essay is something that happens early in the morning. It happens late at night. It happens, um, right. it happens in the spaces in between. I, yeah, I remember watching, I think it was like an interview or, or a, a video or a lecture or something I saw you do where you were talking about the studio, and I, I should have tried to find it before, um, but talking about the studio as this like platform for you to kind of explore your interests kind of in relation to 
kind of client projects. Do you still kind of think of it? I do. I mean, I don't think that that's... I mean, I think that my very particular sense of it is that... The, I mean, I think the studio is its own thing, yeah. actually, and more and more project, projects it is an entity. It right. kind of has its own desires beyond the, the desires of any human right. yeah. in it. But at the same time, I do think it's like... Yeah, I think of it as a kind of... It's this solid basis and a platform that then allows for other things to happen. I mean, I think that I obviously have a very particular set of interests right. and that drives the way that I approach projects, the kinds of projects right. I want us to kind of work on. And so does Adam and so do Chris and so yeah. do all of the other people at the studio. But I want to, I want to talk a little bit about design criticism. Yeah. Um, I saw a video uh, where you were talking and, and you made a comment about wanting a kind of richer discourse in the graphic design profession, and you compared it to architecture mm. and saying how that, that there was always kind of like a rich critical discourse around architecture, and you had a desire to see something like that around graphic design, and that you wanted the studio to kind of make work that would make people want to like talk about it and think critically about it. Um, and I was wondering if you could just kind of like expand, you know, a little bit on that, or your kind of general thoughts about the kind of state of quote-unquote design criticism? Yeah. I mean, I think that we always followed, I mean, when Adam and I started Project Projects, we felt like there was this kind of hole in the middle. Like, there obviously there are these figures. I mean, and Robin Kinross is, for me, somebody who I still yeah. love reading and rereading, and there are other people, um, you know, who are working now who are interesting critics. Yeah. But I think that we always felt like there was, there were not people, there were very few people writing about design in the way that we thought it ought to be written about. Um, and I, I mean, I, I guess I, I should say that the truth is, is that at this moment, I don't read that much design criticism. I read a lot more art criticism. I read, um, you know, I, 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 and I read other, I read a lot of fiction these days. I don't, I don't actually read yeah. that much design criticism right now, though. So, I might be totally off the mark. There might be a bunch of people doing that now who, you know. No, I mean, it's interesting because I feel the same way and I'm finding myself reading a lot more. And just since starting this project, I'm reading a lot of literary criticism and that seems to be very, uh, there's a lot of kind of entry points into design through that and text and things like that. Um, but I'm curious, you said something that I thought was interesting is that there weren't people writing about design critically in the way you wanted to see. Do you, can you, like, verbalize? Yeah, I mean, I can I verbalize that. I think that, um, uh, I mean, it's partially, it's a very good question. Let me try to think that through. I think it's partially what I always really wished for from design criticism, which is a very selfish desire, is for somebody who could do a really deep reading of certain formal design. Yeah. De decisions, like in a way, I mean, let's put it this way. And again, this sounds even more megalomaniacal, but I mean, it's like it's like from the beginning, you know, even the the choice of a typeface for me is always this extremely laborious choice yeah. of trying to decide on what really makes sense for this context, yeah. what resonates historically, what kind of is interesting in its own immediate yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. There's I mean, like there's like a million decisions that go into that. And I just always wish that somebody other than me could explain, could like care about I, that. I mean, because that's what, 
I, I love that you said that because that's what kind of really blew me away at the invalid format talk that I saw you do six years ago, and you talked about the three typeface choices and that they were kind of from different modes of manufacturing type. And you had the monospace and you had the kind of web font, and it was just like, wait, who? I didn't know that this was a thing that people could think about, and so I. I don't know, I guess there's not really a question there other than a compliment to well, you, but... I, I, mean, I, I take it way too far, like, in the sense of, like, this is a thing that probably nobody will ever know or care about, except for maybe, like, Adam and Chris and a handful of other people. But, like, I, you know, I used to, when I was in college, I used to always choose typeface. I used to often choose typefaces for projects based on their names and how the names related to the project. Like, there's a yeah, whole yeah. embedded level of things which nobody else needs right. to care about, but, you know, to me it makes it richer. And, and, and you want to see, you would have, you like to see people writing about that so you're not the one just saying, like, hey, look at this. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But it's like, I mean, I think that I, I it's not, I'm not just talking about my own work. I would right. like, you know, for example, one mode that, that, that exists is like experimental jet set. Yeah. The way they write about the decisions that they've yeah. made and why they made certain formal decisions. Um, I think that, you know, that's not my mode, that's their mode, but... It's a really, like, in, in the way that, you know, there are, there, there is a whole group of people who will look at a painting and really think about, you know, right. why this kind of brushstroke, why this kind of paint, I wish yeah. there were people who would do the same for typography, or paper, or binding, or, you know, or interaction, or the reason why a logo was drawn in a circular, with a particular curve. Like, I wish that there were people yeah. who could expound in an intelligent way upon the reasons for a set of formal decisions. And then and how how that kind of relates to the larger culture and Yeah, and, and then like yeah, because that's like that's I think the one half of it is being able to understand the kind of formal reasons for a thing or even speculating on the formal reasons thing of a thing or caring about them. And then I think the next step is like what does that say about the times that we're in? Like I actually just randomly read I read a um, an, a review last night, I was reading for a piece I'm writing, a review in Design Issues, I think, from maybe 2007 about Bruce Mao's Massive Change, oh, yeah. and it was actually a very good review. It was a very thoughtful and well, or maybe it was from the Harvard Design Review, but it was, it actually took apart the formal decisions, then put them into a political context, and then also really, like, kind of examined what the intentionality of it was, and right. so it right. did the micro and the macro. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like that is, like, exactly what I'm, like, looking for also, actually, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm kind of doing this project is to see, am I the only one that thinks that this is valuable um, or that there's a place for this? So I'm, I'm curious, do you, what, I, I want to phrase this in a way that's not, doesn't sound like a leading question, but what... What type of value do you think that kind of like critical discourse about designed artifacts has uh, for the profession, for to have people that are kind of doing that and kind of deconstructing that? I mean, I think the value, which may sound very elitist, but I think the value is that it just, it leads to a more thoughtful way of practicing. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it leads to a world in which, um, in which 
design is not just a kind of set of arbitrary decisions and not a set of things that happen in an unconsidered way, but actually where there's a real set of intentions that are that's yeah. right. And I mean, it's, I should say it's not any less than what I hope for in when making an exhibition. Like when making an exhibition, I wish, I mean, and it sometimes it is, but I often talk to people or colleagues who are curators about this. I would like that there are people who write about an exhibition in all of its aspects, from the display to the kind of artistic decisions made to the curatorial decisions, and actually like treat that um, as a complex thing from which you can kind of actually see a mirror of the entire world. Right. And then, yeah, do you think, something I've been thinking about a lot, um, and it's kind of this question that comes up when I'm having these conversations is when you're talking about that type of critical look, um, I keep coming back to this idea of audience and, and is that kind of written and critiqued for designers and, it, and then is there a role for kind of the larger public? And I come back to kind of your analogy to the way architecture has had that and you know, there's architecture critics writing in like the New Yorker Right. Um, well, that's, I mean, this is this is why I preface this by saying it might be elitist because yeah, yeah. I'm talking about writing criticism for a kind of very specific group, probably primarily of practitioners okay. or like not necessarily of design, but maybe practitioners also of other fields, whether right. in the arts or in architecture or and right. also critics. And yes, I'm, I mean. I mean, I think there, on the other hand, I think there's obviously a place for the kind of larger dialogue of a thing, but I think that that's, I mean, that's almost on the level of the affect of the design. Like, when I think, oh, of, like, I think yeah. that there is a difference between, I mean, it's the same way that, like, there are great artworks that people go and they'll, and people love them and they look at them, right. and they don't need to understand all of the kind of mastery or the technique or the thinking that went into that to actually appreciate that thing. Right. Like, the greatest films are also great films whether or not you have a background in film right. theory. Like, the, the, the best works of any discipline, and actually I think also, like, particularly when we move, be, move before like kind of authorship is even a question. Like when we move yeah. before like the kind of like the Middle Ages or the Renaissance when we get the idea of a kind of sole author. Right. Like still great works of art or architecture that are ancient, it doesn't matter. Like they 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 they, they have a resolution at which they're able to be looked at without any expertise and they have an affect, but the deeper you go into them, they're almost fractal in yeah, the way yeah, that yeah. they kind of give you pleasure. Because the deeper you look at them, when you analyze a, a, a temple in Karnataka from 500 uh, AD, it, when you analyze it on a spatial level um, or on a kind of proportional level, it actually gives you as much or gives you more. Yeah. But it also, when you see it for the first time and you don't know anything about architecture, you think it's magnificent. Right. That, yeah, that's interesting. And I would just, I mean, I'm actually, I mean, I just realized I'm saying what I want to say, which is that I wish that design, I mean, this is a selfish aim for the profession, I wish that design would be kind of seen as yeah, part of yeah, that, that yeah, graphic yeah. artifacts. Like, it's not about authorship for me, because personally, when I make things, it's about authorship, but I don't give a shit about authorship in the end of the day. I just care that there are works that are rich enough and that were created with the yeah, level of intention yeah, 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 that yeah. they actually resonate over time on these yeah. multiple levels. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know how to follow that up. Um, I, I have just a couple questions just yeah. to kind of wrap, wrap it up. And one of them is, is kind of related to that. And I was curious about when you are designing or when the studio is designing, do you think about, and we talk about this a little bit, do you kind of think about those things and those kind of levels of meaning um, and kind of like the criticality around the work that you're creating? For sure. I mean, I think that that's always been embedded. I mean, personally, that's always been embedded in my practice. And I think that, therefore, it's also been always part of the studio is that it's like every, I mean, it's like every formal move is a move that means something. And we're trying to always unpack what the meaning of those things are. And obviously, there's always a level. Like, you can't, like, what is it? Like, the, like, David Hume you know, like, like, what's this thing about, you know, even the skeptic, even the person who is a skeptic, in the end of the day, when they're drinking a beer, they, they see that the sun right. goes down, or whatever, I don't know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, been, like, a long, but, but, like, like, so you can only, kind of, strip back the veils so many levels, yeah. but still, the ideal, and again, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not trying to set up a construct in which the goal is, like, this kind of total authorship that's like right. total like it's actually more that and I actually also should say that of course I think there are amazing works in all genres that actually happen without this level of self-consciousness as well but actually that is invested maybe more in the actual making of the thing they take on that richness right. and you sometimes you don't know which things are going to mean something in a hundred years or five hundred yeah. years and which things aren't right. but I do think that like for me it's at least a basis to say it's also just more interesting for me. Like, I, I guess the thing that I would wish is that there would be more pieces of graphic design, not just by me, but by other people, that actually have the richness of a great novel. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, do you... I, I have two final questions. Um, and actually, I really love that last answer, and, and it's making me, like, want to, like, kind of, like, go off and talk more about that, but we're low on time. Um, like 10 minutes. Yeah, these two questions... Potentially could also be kind of big. Um, and we touched on both of them a little bit. Um, and, and they're kind of semi-related to each other also. Uh, the first one was you said that you aren't reading a lot of design criticism, but you're reading a lot of art criticism and, and fiction. I'm curious kind of what kind of writers you're drawn to or, you know, the type of writing that they do and whether you think there's a place for that. Is that related to kind of this discourse around around design that you're kind of like looking for. So whom I'm reading changes constantly. Yeah. I, I should really be honest and say I'm mostly reading literature at the moment and that just goes in phases. It's also summer. But I mean recent things I can go to like the canonical things for me and then also the more okay. recent things. Yeah. Like I mean the basically the basis of like you know everything the basis of like eighty percent of what I care of about care about for the last like fifteen years is basically W. G. Zabald's Rings of Saturn. Um, oh, interesting. Like okay. that's kind of probably one of those texts where when I first read it in two thousand or two thousand one, that basically set a certain tone and standard um, for me. That's been on my. That's one of those books that's like been on my list for a while, and it just keeps kind of like getting knocked. Yeah. Down and then there's new uh, Peter Mendelssohn cover for oh, coming out in November, oh. and so I'm waiting for that. And so that's now, interesting. Oh, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that—that's I'm, I'm bumping it up. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, you either love it or you hate it, but it's basically Zabald is for me like one of the standards. Okay. Um, I recently read I recently um, read both of Ben Lerner's novels. Um, oh yeah, um, uh, leaving the Atocha Station at ten oh four, and I thought they were phenomenal. And part of it is that the way that he can move into different literary voices yeah. Yeah. is like. Unbelievable. So I, I kind of am really into those. I mean, then they're like the really obvious ones that I've always been really into, like Calvino right. and Perec and Ulipo and and then I mean and then I mean another one is like Vikram Chandra, who is this um, Indian author who wrote this amazing book called Sacred Games and had a life as a programmer before he became a novelist. Oh, and and so has used customized um, CMS software to like to basically track the characters throughout his books and distribute them oh, and like track multiple subplots. Yeah, yeah. He's like the kind of algorithmic version of Parekh. And then another one who I, I mean somebody I was reading you know a couple of years ago who was very influential on me but almost more for his political dimension was Zia Haider Rahman who had been a mathematician he was a mathematician, then a financier, then a human rights lawyer, then wrote this first novel called In the Light of What We Know. That's a brilliant, brilliant novel um, about kind of race and politics and post-colonialism and like yeah. dynamics. And I'm trying to think what else I've read recently that was like really... I mean, I, I mean I'm not like a voracious, voracious reader. Right now I'm reading The Stand by Stephen King because I'm curating a show and curating an experimental show with an artist named Anthony Marcellini um, that will be at P next year that is using as its curatorial structure the structure of the stand. Um, so we will choose a bunch of artists who will be killed off and then we'll... It's very oh, complicated. So I, I actually think that I take more... In my design work, I probably am more inspired by... Like, the idea for salt, for the typeface, yeah, yeah. actually comes more or less uh, verbatim out of Vikram Chandra's first novel, Red Earth and Pouring Rain, in which he had... Um, in which there's an Indian typesetter who, while typesetting the works of William oh, wow. Shakespeare for a colonial boss, um, inserts these bold letters into it that spell out seditionary texts that, like, fuck the British, oh, that are wow. inserted into these okay. books yeah. that he's typesetting. I more or less took the idea from Salt, for Salt, directly right. out of that novel. Um, oh, that's uh, a, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I know I said I had two more questions, but yeah. you kind of saying all those, my, I was going to add in another question was kind of, are there things that you take from those? So that's really interesting yeah. um, to hear. My, my final question uh, is kind of just more of a kind of larger general question that uh, I hope kind of a, a little bit encapsulates everything that we've talked about, but are there kind of issues or objects within the kind of design community, the design profession, uh, that you would want to see talked about at that kind of rich, deeper level, or, you, you know, trends in the field, or uh, designers, or kind of like, you know, issues or conflicts? So that's a very yeah. big question. Um, that's why we're ending with it. Yeah, I'm trying to, I mean, let me give you a moment to warm up and try to think if there's, I mean, there, I mean, I think, I mean, this is just stuff that I'm interested in right now. I'm 
I guess I've always been interested in this. I'm interested in how time changes design. Like I'm interested oh, in how okay. how objects look at different moments in time and how when they're fresh they look one way and then how they actually change as they change their surroundings. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And that for me is like obviously I can think about that in terms of typographies, I can think of that in terms of identities, I can think of that also in terms of interactivity, but it's like right. this question of, of, of how certain objects look at certain moments in time. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm really interested in the, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still interested in, I'm basically still a real typographic geek, and I still really care and have always cared about, you know, the resonance of specific typographies right. and why they're used for certain things and what they mean in each of those. Um, I think, uh, I mean, maybe a couple of years ago I really wanted to more people to think about and talk about um, different modes of um, basically like the kind of end game of variable identities. Oh, yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like, like, like what, like after we've exhausted kind of algorithmic identities and things that are like, what is, like, what's the end game of that? Yeah. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Um, I'm also obviously, um, I mean, just totally random. I mean, I'm also like, I think there's a lot to be said for looking at power dynamics and also oh, how design serves certain like kind of agendas. Right. Because right? I think yeah. that the flip side of like my kind of deep formal inquiry of design, this is where I think that Ken Ross actually, in some of his best essays, like it, um, manages to like talk about both ideology and form um, right. in, in a way that's interrelated. Like, how do certain design decisions serve either yeah. corporate or political yeah. agendas, yeah. ideological agendas? Like, that's kind of, like, you know, for me, the nexus. Yeah. Like, like, when you can talk about, like, form and you can talk about why that serves certain yeah. kind of ideologies, then I think you kind of, that's, for me, interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and just the idea of neutrality and defaults yeah. and how those, you know, can reveal ideologies and things well, like that. Because I always think that, like, you know, whenever people talk about, like, quote-unquote modernism and they talk about defaults and they think about standards, I always have to say, well, but these were standards that were created by a very select group yeah. of white men yeah. in Europe yeah. at a particular moment in time. And so, of course, it's easy at that moment to think that design can be yeah. universal. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that... I, We'll wrap it up, but I've been thinking about that kind of in relation to algorithms and things also created by a very narrow yeah. group of people, and it's like, oh, this is kind of the same thing happening, where it's supposed to be this kind of neutral thing, I think that's... Well, I mean, and the classic example, which we all know, is like the thing of, I was recently trying to use this face swap program oh, yeah. with my dad, and my dad has extremely dark skin. And right. it just doesn't recognize right. him as having yeah. a face, and that's the kind of yeah, that's exactly. that's that's the continuation of the way in which like Kodak films yeah. and like various yeah. films yeah. like basically didn't work for African American or dark skinned right. faces, right. and yeah. like so these kind of standards. Whenever you have a standard of testing, it's always still being optimized for one particular result and one particular group, and those assumptions are often unchecked. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting, and I, I think. You know, you, you prefaced all of that with these are just the things that I'm kind of thinking about now, and, and I've asked this question to multiple people, and they've all kind of done the same thing of just these kind of things that they're wrestling with. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And, and uh, your work and the studio have been like very influential to me for years now, and I've 
credited this before, the salt identity is one of the reasons why I think I'm in grad school in a lot of ways. I, I appreciate your work and I also appreciate you uh, talking with me on. I thought this was really interesting. Thank you. This was really interesting for me too, so thanks. This episode was recorded on August 11th, 2016 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.